2. Everything had gone beautifully that morning in the run-up to the game itself, even allowing for the natural prickliness of a young thief finally allowed a part in his first big score. Of course I know where I'm supposed to be when the action starts, Bug whined. I've spent more time perched up on that temple roof than I did in my mother's goddamned womb. Jean Tannen let his right hand trail in the warm water of the canal while he took another bite of the sour marsh apple held in his left. The forward gunwale of the flat-bottomed barge was a choice spot for relaxation in the watered wine light of early morning, allowing all sixteen stone of Jean's frame to sprawl comfortably, keg belly, heavy arms, bandy legs, and all. The only other person, and the one doing all the work, in the empty barge was Bug, a lanky, mop-headed twelve-year-old braced against the steering pole of the stern. Your mother was in an understandable hurry to get rid of you, Bug. Jean's voice was soft and even and wildly incongruous. He spoke like a teacher of music or a copier of scrolls. Where not? So indulge me once more with proof of your penetrating comprehension of our game. Damn it! Bug replied, giving the barge another push against the gentle current of the seaward-flowing canal. You and Locke and Carlo and Galdo are down in the alley between fortunate waters and the gardens of the Temple of Nara, right? I'm up on the roof of the temple across the way. Go on, Jean said around a mouthful of marsh apple. Where's Don Salvara? Other barges, heavily laden with everything from ale casks to bleating cows, were slipping past the two of them on the clay-coloured water of the canal. Bug was poling them north along Camor's main commercial waterway, the Via Camorazza, toward the shifting market, and the city was lurching into life around them. The leaning grey tenements of water-slick stone were spitting their inhabitants out into the sunlight and the rising summer warmth. The month was Parthis, meaning that the night sweat of condensation already boiling off the buildings as a soupy mist would be greatly missed by the cloudless white heat of early afternoon. He's coming out of the Temple of Fortunate Waters, like he does every penance day right around noon. He's got two horses and one man with him if we're lucky. A curious ritual, Jean said. Why would he do a thing like that? Deathbed promise to his mother. Bug drove his pole down into the canal, struggled against it for a moment, and managed to shove them along once more. She kept the Vadran religion after she married the old Don Salvara, so he leaves an offering at the Vadran temple once a week and gets home as fast as he can so nobody pays too much attention to him. Damn it, Jean, I already know this shit. Why would I be here if you didn't trust me? And why am I the one who gets to push this stupid barge all the way to the market? Oh, you can stop poling the barge any time you can beat me hand to hand three falls out of five. Jean grinned, showing two rows of crooked brawler's teeth in a face that looked as though someone had set it on an anvil and tried to pound it into a more pleasing shape. Besides, you're an apprentice in a proud trade, learning under the finest and most demanding masters it has to offer. Getting all the shit work is excellent for your moral education. You haven't given me any bloody moral education. Yes, 
Well, that's probably because Locke and I have been dodging our own for most of our lives now. As for why we're going over the plan again, let me remind you that one good screw-up will make the fate of those poor bastards look sunny in comparison to what we'll get. Jean pointed at one of the city's slop wagons, halted on a canal-side boulevard to receive a long, dark stream of night soil from the upper window of a public alehouse. These wagons were crewed by petty criminals whose offences were too meagre to justify continual incarceration in the Palace of Patience. Shackled to their wagons and huddled in the alleged protection of long leather ponchos, they were let out each morning to enjoy what sun they could when they weren't cursing the dubious accuracy with which several thousand Camori emptied their chamber pots. I won't screw it up, Jean. Bug shook his thoughts like an empty coin purse, searching desperately for something to say that would make him sound as calm and assured as he imagined Jean and all the older gentlemen bastards always were. But the mouth of most twelve-year-olds far outpaces the mind. I just won't! I bloody won't! I promise! Good lad, Jean said. Glad to hear it. But just what is it that you won't screw up? Bug sighed. I make the signal when Salvara's on his way out of the Temple of Fortunate Waters. I keep an eye out for anyone else trying to walk past the alley, especially the city watch. If anybody tries it, I jump down from the temple roof with a long sword and cut their bloody heads off where they stand. You what? I said I distract them any way I can. You going deaf, Jean? A line of tall counting-houses slid past on their left, each displaying lacquered woodwork, silk awnings, marble facades, and other ostentatious touches along the waterfront. There were deep roots of money and power sunk into that row of three- and four-story buildings. Coin Kisser's Row was the oldest and goldest financial district on the continent. The place was as steeped in influence and elaborate rituals as the glass heights of the five towers— in which the Duke and the Grand Families sequestered themselves from the city they ruled. Move us up against the bank just under the bridges, Bug. Jean gestured vaguely with his apple. His nibs will be waiting to come aboard. Two elder glass arches bridged the Via Camarazza right in the middle of Coin Kisser's Row, a high and narrow cat bridge for foot traffic and a lower, wider one for wagons. The seamless brilliance of the alien glass looked like nothing so much as liquid diamond, gently arched by giant hands and left to harden over the canal. On the right bank was the fauna, a crowded island of multi-tiered stone apartments and rooftop gardens. Wooden wheels churned white against the stone embankment, drawing canal water up into a network of troughs and viaducts that crisscrossed over the fauna's streets at every level. Bug slid the barge over to a rickety quay just beneath the cat bridge. From the faint and slender shadow of this arch, a man jumped down to the quay, dressed, as Bug and Jean were, in oil-stained leather breeches and a rough cotton shirt. His next nonchalant leap took him into the barge, which barely rocked at his arrival. "'Salutations to you, Master Jean Tannen, and profuse congratulations on the fortuitous timing of your arrival,' said the newcomer. Ah, well, felicitations to you in respect of the superlative grace of your entry into our very humble boat, Master Lamora. 
Jean punctuated this statement by popping the remains of his apple into his mouth, stem and all, and producing a wet crunching noise. Creeping shit, man! Loch Lamora stuck out his tongue. Must you do that? You know the black alchemists make fish poison from the seeds of those damned things. Lucky me, said Jean, after swallowing the last bit of masticated pulp, not being a fish. Locke was a medium man in every respect, medium height, medium build, medium dark hair, cropped short above a face that was neither handsome nor memorable. He looked like a proper therin, though perhaps a bit less olive and ruddy than Jean or Bug. In another light he might have passed for a very tan Vadran. His bright grey eyes alone had any sense of distinction. He was a man the gods might have shaped deliberately to be overlooked. He settled down against the left-hand gunwale and crossed his legs. Hello to you as well, Bug. I knew we could count on you to take pity on your elders and let them rest in the sun while you do the hard work with the pole. Jean's a lazy old bastard is what it is, Bug said, and if I don't pole the barge he'll knock my teeth out the back of my head. Jean is the gentlest soul in Camor, and you wound him with your accusations, said Locke. Now he'll be up all night crying. I would have been up all night anyway, Jean added, crying from the ache of rheumatism and lighting candles to ward off evil vapours. Which is not to say that our bones don't creak by day, my cruel apprentice. Locke massaged his kneecaps. We're at least twice your age, which is prodigious for our profession. The daughters of Azaguia have tried to perform a corpse blessing on me six times this week, said Jean. You're lucky Locke and I are still spry enough to take you with us when we run a game. To anyone beyond hearing range, Locke and Jean and Bug might have looked like the crew of a for-hire barge, slacking their way toward a cargo pickup at the junction of the Vieux Camarazza and the Angevin River. As Bug pulled them closer and closer to the shifting market, the water was getting thicker with such barges, and with sleek black cockleshell boats, and battered watercraft of every description, not all of them doing a good job of staying afloat or under control. Speaking of our game, said Locke, how is our eager young apprentice's understanding of his place in the scheme of things? I've been reciting it to Jean all morning, said Bug. And the conclusion is? I've got it down cold! Bug heaved at the pole with all of his strength, driving them between a pair of high-walled floating gardens, with inches to spare on either side. The scents of jasmine and oranges drifted down over them as their barge slipped beneath the protruding branches of one of the gardens. A wary attendant peeked over one garden boat's wall, staff in hand, to fend them off if necessary. The big barges were probably hauling transplants to some noble's orchard upriver. Down cold, and I won't screw it up, I promise. I know my place, and I know the signals. I won't screw it up! <laughs>